Welcome to UUCSW Reflections, a podcast by the Unitarian Universalist Congregational Society of Westboro, Massachusetts. We're glad you're here. Welcome to UUCSW Reflections. I'm your host, Amanda Hall, here with Reverend Laurel Gray. This is the monthly episode of this podcast where we reflect on this month's sermons and answer questions from the congregation. If you'd like to submit a question or suggest a topic for discussion, please email it to podcasts at uucsw.org. Don't worry, we won't share the names or identifying information about question askers on this podcast. June's theme was compassion, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the sermon Flower Communion, which can be found in this podcast feed. We'll also discuss the Unitarian Universalist Association General Assembly, which took place virtually this month. Hello, Laurel. Hi, Amanda. Happy almost summertime. I know. You're taking a little bit of time off for the first time since you've been our minister, right? I am. Yeah, I will rejuvenate after all the excitement that this year has held. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of unexpected things. Yeah, it's been a very exciting ride that we have been on yeah. together. <laughs> yes, quite a quite a first year. Yep. Glad to be here. Well, we're very glad to have you too. <laughs> so this month, we only had one sermon, which was Flower Communion. Yep. But the other big thing that happened this month was the General Assembly put on by the Unitarian Universalist Association. And that was preceded by a special minister's version Yeah. So we have our annual conference for the Ministers Association, and that leads into General Assembly. So normally when we when we all go to whatever city GA is in, the ministers all show up three or four days early. And that's when we have our annual meeting and have our like we meet with a UA president and we do. This year, the really big thing was that we did a pretty big overhaul of our professional ethics guidelines, which is really awesome. So it's it's things like that that's part of our professional association. Are you in contact with other ministers a lot throughout the year other than this assembly? Yeah, so I'm in two different colleague groups, which is really good for checking in with other people and sort of talking about best practices and, you know, what do I do in this unforeseen situation that I'm in. And we know that actually one of the best ways to keep ministers from burning out is to have good collegial relationships. And so that's that's an important part of what I do to support other ministers, but also to keep myself vibrant and, and going strong. And just for people who might not know, what generally happens at the General Assembly? Oh, goodness. Yes. It is so many things. So I'm a highly introverted person and it is always overwhelming because it's everything from these like incredible worship services that have like thousands of people at them. Simply being around that many you use at once is sort of like arriving in Candyland um, (laughs) (laughs) where everybody knows what a chalice is. It's when we do our annual meetings as an association. So that's updates to bylaws, various different kinds of votes. Like this year, we voted to allocate funds more towards youth ministry and young adult ministry because it hasn't been well funded for the last several years. And then there are also a whole bunch of workshops and panel discussions. And then there's also like a layer of fun activities there's all kinds of stuff that happens and there's youth specific programming. The first time I went to GA, I was 15 and I, I honestly think that's 
part of what kept me a UU was having that experience of really connecting with other teenagers. So it's a big thing. Yeah. And one thing that happened also at the General Assembly in 2017 was that the UUA Board of Trustees chartered the Commission on Institutional Change, who just released their report this year called Widening the Circle of Concern. And I know that that covered some of the same types of themes as your ministerial professional ethics guideline update. Right, right. And so they sort of ran in tandem. And so both our professional ethics update and the Commission on Institutional Change was this, I think both of them were a two-year-long process. And they were both really looking at how we can live more fully into our values and who we aspire to be as you use. And part of that is acknowledging the harm that's done within our congregations and within our association to historically marginalized people. So Black folks, trans folks, queer folks, women, Um, disabled folks, a lot of people who we want to be treating with goodness and kindness. And there are a lot of ways that we fail on that front. And so both of these studies, we're looking at what do we really need to do to change sort of the ways that we're, we're not really living up to our values. And so... So the commission is sort of the part about the UUA and UU congregations, and then the professional ethics are the guidelines that we as ministers are held to because we're a professional association, so we can lose our credentialing. So now with these updates, there's more specificity to the things that you can't do to other ministers or to congregants in the interest of protecting people who've been harmed the most. So I think it's it's a really incredible thing. And I'm so thankful for the people who put in so much work to figuring out where we really fell short and where we could be clear about how we want to be with each other. Absolutely. I did read the report. And there were a lot of people who were on the actual part of the commission. And then there were over a thousand people who testified and shared their expertise and their personal experiences as part of... I was one of them. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Do you want to talk about your experience (laughs) with that? Yes, it was a really interesting process. So I went to... Two years ago when I went to GA, they had one of the panel discussions, one of the workshops at General Assembly was introducing the commission and how it was going to work. And so they did this exercise where I don't remember exactly what the prompt was, but it was basically like giving out index cards and having people write down moments when issues of race came up or different issues of injustice and sort of moments when we fell short of our values. And so I wrote down some experiences that I had had. And so as a result, they they then contacted me and asked if we could do an interview. So there's these archives of all of these interviews with people about the ways that we've seen racism and white supremacy and transphobia and all these things come up and the ways that we have or have not had the agility to respond appropriately. So part of my story was like this moment of being completely flabbergasted by something that a congregant said to me when I was guest preaching and just realizing like how much learning we have. But it was a really wonderful process. And so I can say from having participated in it, even on that sort of like small scale, they did an incredibly thorough and exceptional job. 
And so I have incredible faith in their their research process. As someone also who has a sociology degree, like they did a really good job. So I'm thankful that we're, as a denomination, we're looking at ourselves and thinking about how we can grow more fully into who we want to be. Right. And not a moment too soon. Yeah. Part of what they acknowledged in this report is when they did approach people the same way they approached you, asking for a personal testimony, some of the response that they got was, I have told this story before and nothing has changed. Right. So I know that there are a lot of people who have experienced the pain of being oppressed, pain of being marginalized within a space so tender as your faith. Yeah. And experienced a second, a secondary trauma of reliving the experience for someone else's edification. Yep. And a tertiary trauma of that being for nothing. Right. And seeing no change come as a result of their volunteering their personal experience. Right. And so I want to make space for gratitude for the people who put out the time and energy to contribute to this and also to the people who decided that their personal well-being did not accommodate contributing to this. I feel that as well. You know, that is totally valid as a choice as well. And 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 I'm so thankful that there are so many people who who've had these awful experiences and have really good reason you know we we've talked about people leaving other traditions because they were harmed there are a lot of people who have very good reason to abandon unitarian universalism and i'm so grateful and inspired by all the people who decided that they were going to stay and and i hope for their sake and everyone's sake that we really we take this seriously because it is so important and it is so so tender and painful in all the ways that you just said. Yeah. So one thing that they did point out in the report was something that you also talked about in your sermon, the flower communion sermon, which is yep. the sort of tension that's inherent in Unitarian Universalism between personal freedom, individual search yep. for truth and meaning, and interdependence and community. Right. And how sometimes those can seem to be in opposition to each other or the way that they're interpreted can at least seem that way. Right. Or they can be misinterpreted as ways to shut other people down and can genuinely be harmful. Right. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that tension in UUism, where it might come from, and how you think we can respect both of those parts of our faith. That's a good question. And it's really complicated and I think it encompasses everything from sort of our historical roots and our theological roots to the sort of sociological reality that we often are a place of refuge for people coming from other denominations that have harmed them. And just in terms of timeline, Unitarian Universalism as a modern merged faith of these two separate traditions that merged in the early 60s is really young by sort of standards of time and religious organizations. And there's, when you add in the layer of we're a denomination that is historically largely white, and so there's sort of that culture of, that we talked about a little bit last time, of white supremacy and individualism and those kinds of things. And so when you mix it all together, it gets really complicated. And I think 
part of the goal with the commission and my hope in the way that I talk about what it means to be UU is that we can get to a place that claims who we are and who we aspire to be and what we do value and what we do believe instead of existing in a place that isn't as deeply rooted that is a statement about who we're not and what we aren't. With regards to the fact that we have often been a safe haven for people who are fleeing from other religious experiences and communities that have harmed them, I so understand that reactionary understanding of freedom. Right. You know, that if someone is hurt and damaged by what is called somewhere community, I can see running towards the opposite extreme of I have freedom to do whatever I want because I have to run away from this repressive, prescriptive kind of community. I think that our work now is not to run away from community or accountability or shared values, but to build one that is healing and respects personal experience and mutual flourishing at the same time. Well, and what we had talked about in the first, I think it was the first podcast we started recording after quarantine, we were talking about the sort of scales falling from people's eyes and are sort of collectively realizing that we actually are really intricately connected to each other. And the sense that we are individually in control of our lives is a farce. And that's a really hard thing to give up on, especially if you've been harmed in the past and where you're pulling away and separate and being on your own is the thing that made you safer. And I think part of the developmental process of moving towards a a more life-giving and liberative place is getting to rebuild and say, we are connected and we do affect each other. And let's look at the foundation of how that actually saves everybody. And that actually our connectedness is what is life-giving for everybody. And so it's actually a really good thing that we're all in this together. But that's a pretty big shift to make and it can feel really scary. I may be like repeating you a little bit here, but it's occurring to me that among other things, there are two sources of socialization that can cause you to pursue freedom in an individualistic way. One of them being American dogma of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, particularly as it relates to white supremacy culture. White supremacy depends on that idea. White people thinking that their success is based on personal merit right. and not on privilege. So that individualism is a central tenet of, you know, white racial American capitalism. Yep. And it can also come as a defense mechanism for survival, like right. you said. If you have been in a situation where your connections to other people have disappointed you and caused you right. pain, and escaping from them looked to you like going it on your yeah. own and being self-reliant, so to speak, learning how to survive is something that's very hard to unlearn when yeah. your survival mechanisms outlive their usefulness. And it can take a long time to see that they're not needed. Yeah, because sometimes the, pu- the pulling away can be adaptive. It can be the thing that keeps you safe. But safe is not the same as flourishing. Yeah. 
And so there's sort of the like, okay, how can we build more on this? Which I hope is where we're going. Right. I mean, if your survival looks like withdrawal, it's not sustainable. And certainly as a faith, you know, our collective surviving, hopefully thriving, is based on leaning in and not out. So, right. Well, and it's also not very welcoming. Like, it's very hard to enter a space that keeps telling you what it isn't. Yeah. Like, how, how, how do you, how can you be in a relationship with that? Yeah, so I was raised UU. Yep. But the way I describe UUism to people almost never talks about theology. Yep. Basically, the the two things that I would always say to people when they ask me what Unitarian Universalism is, is number one, you don't have to believe in God. Mm-hmm. And number two, all of the lesbian weddings in our town <laughs> were held at my church. <laughs> so, Which is awesome. Yeah. What I was trying to communicate with the first is what we aren't. What we aren't is yeah. dogmatically prescriptive. Right. And then with the lesbian weddings, I was trying to communicate what we are. And to yeah. me, what UUism is, is about inclusivity. Of right. course, part of growing up and looking critically at a faith that matters to you is saying, hey, this inclusivity is selective and imperfect. Yeah. How can we make it better? Right. And so it's painful to see that that inclusivity is selective and imperfect. Right. And when something has given you so much, it's really hard to see it not give the same thing to everyone else when it, yeah. that is such a fundamental tenet of what it tries to be. But I think it's a loving and hopeful act to look right. with both eyes open at where you're failing and say, you know, we're not sweeping this under the rug. We see it. We can be better. Yeah. yeah you know and that also like owning owning the ways that we've been off base is trust building because to say like we were wrong and there are things that we need to do and ways we need to change i mean feedback is a gift right feedback means you're engaged um and so i think it has actually is a really good and hopeful thing i hope that this does contribute to our flourishing and our being as a faith tradition more available to the people who really need to find out where they plant their hope um, because Mm -hmm. we all need that as people so I think I think it is really hopeful and I think it's I'm proud of us for the the work that we've done and the listening that we've done and the ways that we're sort of collectively rallying to try to support this change yeah so I'll say that one recommendation is around Mm -hmm. communication between regional and congregational levels of governance and the central UUA governance, improving communication between them. And I will admit that my first thought to that is they don't get to tell us what to do, right? (laughs) You know? It's a good little individualism streak in you. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, of course there is. You know, it's not very... It's chafing to people who are privileged to be told that someone's going to tell them what to do. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the first time a privileged person hears that, they throw a tantrum. And I know because I feel myself throwing that tantrum. So, And so this is an important distinction. And somebody 
Somebody had asked me there was there was contention around our professional ethics guidelines because there was a small but loud group of people who didn't want these changes to go into effect. And someone asked me why, like, why would anybody resist this? And I thought about it for a while. And so in terms of the way that people think about freedom, people with privilege often think about freedom as the freedom to do things and freedom to act a certain way and to have things the way that they want. So it's freedom to. Whereas people who are historically marginalized being like black folks, trans folks, disabled people, all like people who society tries to push out and and call less than human, in their mind, freedom is freedom from, and it's freedom from harm, freedom from oppression, freedom from being overlooked. And those things can be intention because if we sort of move the line where we're preventing harm, the people who want the freedom to do whatever they want are going to lose some of it. And I'll claim it like as a white person, like we cannot just go around willy-nilly like doing whatever and not claiming the ways that our our behaviors impact other people especially marginalized people but that pushback feels like someone's infringing on our freedom right because the definition is changing but the definition is one that is more life-giving that prevents people from doing harm and being harmed but yeah it totally it can conjure that sense of like who are you to tell me when we're used to, to having the freedom to freedom to do whatever it is that we feel compelled to do. And that self-reliance of, well, we can figure it out ourselves. Right. But then there's the question of, does this actually serve everyone? Yeah. And is this really who we want to be? And I think the commission is saying no. Right? Like, Like we talked about last time, if your intent and your impact are different, and the commission is telling us they are different, then we need to move to get those two things closer together. Yeah. So what does the rest of the summer look like for UCSW? That's a good question. So we have summer services going on for the course of the summer. A couple of them are going to be led by our own congregants. And then we're also doing shared services with some of the congregants in the surrounding area. So definitely make sure to check your email because the sharing services means the time is going to change sometimes. So they're either, I think, at 9.30 or 10 a.m. And they're a little bit less formal, but definitely still a good way to connect with your fellow UUs and to hear other people's stories. Our music director, thankfully, will still be singing her beautiful music. So it should be a good way to connect and still be in community, even while we're sort of off to summer break. Yeah. And when are we back to regular services? The Sunday after Labor Day weekend. So normally that's Water Communion Sunday where we gather all the water from all the places we've been over the summer and mix it together, which proves challenging during a pandemic. So to be continued, things for me to think about in August. So that means we will not have a Q&A episode for July or August. We will be back with more episodes in September. Yeah. I'm excited. Looking forward to it. I can't believe it's been a year of this. That's exciting. I know. And I want to say a special thank you to you because this was your idea. Thank you. And you made it happen. And it's so awesome. And we're so high tech. (laughs) We absolutely are. It's very exciting. But I also, I want to thank you because 
I learn a lot from talking to you. Oh, um, thanks. You know, I really like being able to ask you questions because yeah. I like to hear what you think about them. And I hope more people feel invited into that. Ask away. I'm happy to sort of wrestle with these ideas with you all. Not that I have the answers, but I am trained in thinking about the questions. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so with that... <laughs> Have a safe and rejuvenative summer. Thank you. Likewise, I hope everybody's finding ways to safely celebrate summertime and get some time outside if you can. Yeah, some recharging, however that can look, is just right. Whatever that means, essential. maybe that means staying inside. <laughs> yep. <laughs> All right. Well, for us, that's going to mean signing off. We will talk to you in the fall. Thanks for listening. For more information about what's happening at UUCSW or for ways to get involved, visit us online at uucsw.org or visit us in person. All are welcome. So I derailed us. Oh no, not at all. This is this thing has never been on rails. We're like a flying car, <laughs> not a train. That's why it's entertaining, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Come fly with us, listeners. Okay. Yeah. None of this is going in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>